Hi, welcome to Harvest Church Podcast. We pray that as you listen today, you are blessed and encouraged. Thank you so much for listening in. If you want any more information about our ministry, we'd love you to jump onto our website, harvestaustralia.org. Have a great day. Thank you. G'day. Recently, recently transitioning. You've got to be careful saying that these days. But yes, we did, uh, we did just a couple of weeks ago, we, or this year, uh, rewind, last year, on holidays, God spoke to us about basically our season, or not even our season, our 20 years, our time, there's a difference between time and seasons, but let's not go there, but our time at Bayside uh, was coming to an end, and that 20 years was essentially our allotted time. Uh, to lead that church and to live in Victor Harbour. We always knew that day, that day would come. We didn't know how God would speak to us, when or where or what for. But uh, in July last year, God spoke to us and uh, we waited six months before we told anyone in our church environment. And um, then we revealed the news to our broader church in May, uh, had a succession, uh, transition, uh, to a younger couple in our church uh, who were ordained through the year and uh, we had our farewell and our 20th birthday party uh, just a few weeks ago. It looked something like this and uh, Marty and, and Karen were there and a whole bunch of our friends. It was a, a really great night and just celebrating 20 years of God's goodness at Bayside and also giving us a farewell. So yes, that happens. We, uh, God's called us to live in a place called Coffs Harbour, so Victor Harbour to Coffs Harbour. And they actually spell harbour properly. You know, they've got a U in it. So, so that's going to take some uh, getting used to. But uh, so Jay and our two youngest are up there now. And uh, uh, we, I helped move them in about two weeks ago. And then I've had to come back for a month because our second child's doing year 12, Ebony. And so I'm with her for the next four weeks. And so here I am. Uh, I've rung around a few friends saying... I can't really go to Bayside in the next month, so uh, if you can, I come and visit. Um, so, uh, but as Martin and Karen said, I've, we've been friends for a long time and really appreciate you guys. Even this week, pressing into them for advice uh, in uh, our situation. So it's great to be with you in the home again. Good morning. Last time I was with you, I said that I was working on a book. And it's taken me about four years to get this thing out, but it's my longest pregnancy ever. But it's finally come out. So I pushed this thing out uh, in uh, September last year. You can handle the truth. You can handle the truth, okay? No, it's not a Jack Nicholson takeoff. It, is, it comes from uh, 2 Timothy 2.15, where Paul writes to young Timothy and he says, listen, I want you to be a workman or a work person who doesn't need to be ashamed because you correctly handle the word of truth. You correctly handle the truth. You can handle the truth. You can handle the scriptures. And a lot of churches and a lot of environments will often tell you, in fact, I say this right at the back of the book, while Christians are often encouraged to study and obey the scriptures, often within the first few hours of coming to Christ, people are told, you should read the Bible. Read the Bible and do what it says. You should read the Bible. But very few Christians are taught how. 
how to actually read the Bible, how to understand what it means, how to put it into practice in your life, because, uh, and there's a, there's a whole science to that. The fancy pants term is hermeneutics. And uh, there's a lot of books written on hermeneutics or Bible interpretation that are very technical. And I thought, I need to take a whole new angle, uh, not a whole new angle, I need to find timeless truth and communicate it in a timely manner for a next generation. And so, hence, putting this book together, you can handle the truth. It's written in a very mentoring style. Uh, that's why my mug's on the front sitting down. It's very conversational, very mentoring. In fact, I kind of put myself in the persona of Paul the Apostle writing to a young Timothy. And so, uh, I've got an artist in our church to create a character called Timothy. And you can't have a Tim without a Tam. Okay, so here they are. This is Tim and Tam. And uh, the whole idea, <laughs> the tone of the book is about Chad writing to Tim and Tam and saying, you can do this. You can handle the Bible properly. Yes, it's sometimes complicated. Yes, it sometimes seems uh, a little contradictory in parts, but you've got what it takes. You've got what it takes to handle the Scriptures. Whether you're 20 or whether you're 80, you've got what it takes to handle the Bible. And so the whole book is a mentoring journey. We start at the beginning in step one, uh, talking about how to choose a Bible, okay? Talk about different issues around translations or I'm from New South Wales now, so I have to say translations, okay? Translations or translations, uh, different translations, translations about how to read the Bible properly, okay? Uh, the second part of the book is all about how to understand uh, what that means, okay? Well, we know what the Bible says, women should be silent in the church, okay? That's what the Bible says, but what does that mean? Be baptised and you will be saved. Well, I know that's what the Bible says, but what does that mean? I had two different things. That's the second question. I know what the Bible says, but what does it mean? Well, to discover meaning, you need to consider things like who is that written to, the audience of who, what you're reading. How many of you know that the whole Bible is written for us, but it's not all written to us? That's why the Bible says you should sacrifice animals and apply their blood at the temple, yet none of you have done that today. Because you know what that's, that's what the Bible says, but it doesn't mean it's written to you. There's different audiences in the Bible. So we look at that. We look at the importance of taking a big picture perspective of the Bible. How many of you know a lot of problems arise when people get caught in the little detail and they forget to stand back and appreciate the big picture view of the Bible? So we talk about a big picture view. I'm going to help you with that actually today. And then the third part of the, Bible, the, the, the book, because it's three steps, we look at, well, what does the Bible say? What does the Bible mean? And then thirdly, well, what the heck does it matter? You know, what do I do with it? Who cares? You know, <laughs> who cares if an ancient book says that and mean, means that for all history? What the heck do I do with it? And that's where we take the verse that says, be a workman who correctly handles the word of truth. And we look at the old rendering. Those of us with grey heads probably grew up with a Bible that said, rightly divide the word of truth, rightly divide. And in the, when you come to applying the scripture, there's certain divisions you need to make. There's certain cuts you need to make. You need to distinguish certain things. Like what's written for you and what's written to you. That's an important thing to distinguish. You need to uh, make a cut between what is major and what is minor. Eh, it doesn't really matter what you believe about that. That's a minor issue. You need to make a distinction between what is really clear and what's a little bit ambiguous. And it's okay if we disagree. Okay? You, there's certain cuts you need to make. And so we look at that and ultimately the book ends by saying the whole purpose of the scripture is to find Jesus. Yeah. To know who Jesus is and who you are because of him. Yeah. 
Okay? One of the reasons the Bible is relevant to us and one of the reasons it is relevant to the next generation is because it answers the biggest existential question that young people are asking, who am I? What is my identity? Okay? Who am I? Why do I exist? The Bible tells us that. And the Bible says who we are because of Christ. I am who I am, says I am. It's the most important <laughs> thing you can discover in your life. Who am I? I am who God says I am. And the scriptures help us to discover that. Okay? Very good. Very practical. Endorsements, support from all over the place. Barry Chant, okay? Founders of Bible colleges and all sorts of people have, uh, have uh, said it's worthwhile. So grab a copy today. Boom. There's a plug. But I'm not here to speak about that today because God spoke to me on Monday about coming here and gave me a word for you. Now, for some of you, it's going to be really particularly pertinent and personal and you're going to go, oh, that was for me. That <laughs> <laughs> uh, was for me. Some of you, it's not going to be particularly pertinent, but you're going to go, ooh, I really got something out of that today and I know one day that's going to come in handy. So don't feel that either or are lesser or greater. Truth is good seven days of the week. And truth is timeless. Okay, so it's always good. And often, sometimes, particularly in a prophetic community, we hope that truth becomes comes timely to us. But don't necessarily think that that's always prize A. Truth is always good. And this morning, there's something in this for everyone. I want to speak this morning about healing hope. For fractured families. Healing hope for fractured families. And what I want to do very simply is I'm going to start by sitting down. Just, I've had three coffees already, okay, so I need to just calm me down a little bit. I'm going to read through Ephesians chapter 2. There's a couple of reasons I'm doing that. Number one, um, this is the most Bible reading some of you have had for months. Okay, so we're going to read the scripture. Uh, I'm going to explain a little bit about it. I'm going to show you how easy it is to read the Bible. Then I'm going to shift gears. I'm going to tell you a story about God's history of a fractured family. God knows what it's like to have a broken family. It's the story of the Bible, the story of the father's fractured family. And then I want to shift gears at the end and make prophetic pronouncements and show you how God is faithful in restoring a fractured community. Let's do it. Are you ready? Ephesians chapter 2. As for you, you were dead. Not physically, though. You were dead in your transgressions and sins in which you used to live. When you followed the ways of the world and the ruler of the kingdom of the air, the spirit who is now at work in those who are disobedient. All of us also lived among them at one time, gratifying the cravings of our flesh and following its desires and thoughts. Like the rest, we were by nature deserving of wrath. But because of his great love for us, God, who is rich in mercy, made us alive with Christ, even when we were dead in transgressions. It is by grace you have been saved. And God raised us up with Christ and seated us with him in the heavenly realms in Christ Jesus, in order that in the coming ages he might show the incomparable riches of his grace expressed in his kindness to us in Christ Jesus. For it is by grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not from yourselves, it's the gift of God, not by works so that no one can boast, for we are God's handiwork, created in Christ Jesus to do good works, which God prepared in advance for us to do. When you were saved, you were raised from the dead. 
you were dead. Not physically. Not physically. You were dead relationally. Some people say um, we were dead spiritually. I prefer the term not spiritual death. I prefer to use the term covenantal death. Because some people are dead to God. They don't have a relationship with God. But they're very much spiritually alive and active. Okay, <laughs> they're engaging in the spirit realm, they just don't have a relationship with God. So they're not really spiritually dead, but they're covenantally they're dead. They don't have a right-standing relationship with God. They're dead to God relationally. That's the death we were in. We were in sin death. And the moment we came to Jesus, forgiven of our sin, we became alive. We were now in a right-standing relationship with him. We became alive in the spirit. We became covenantally alive. We were resurrected. For 20 years, I have changed lyrics to songs that we sing in our church. And one of them was a favourite of mine, Stephen Furtix, uh, Resurrected. The resurrected king is resurrecting me. No, I didn't like that. I changed the lyric to that. Not the resurrected king is resurrecting me. The resurrected king has resurrected me. When I came to Christ, I was raised from the dead. I experienced new life and I'm raised. And everybody said... And this resurrection brings with it not just a raising to, uh, to a new life with God, but it also brings with it the power and the potential of reconciliation between other people. Because the cross is not only vertical, it also is horizontal. So the cross has power to reconcile us with God, to make us alive to him, and also to reconcile us one to another horizontally. And that's where Paul goes now. He joins resurrection with relational reconciliation and he does this by distinguishing two groups of people. In the book of Ephesians, and your homework this week is to go and read Ephesians, one chapter a day, six days, start today, you'll be done by the weekend, it'll be great, all right? Easy peasy. He talks about you and us, you and us. And he's not saying you Ephesians and us apostles. He's speaking culturally there. He's saying, you Gentiles and us Jews, okay? You non-Jews and us Jews, okay? <laughs> us Jews. There's this cultural distinction that he's highlighting, and that's what he's talking about now. You Gentiles were dead in sin. We also were dead, <gasps> but God has raised us both. Keep reading. Verse 11. Therefore, remember that formerly you who were Gentiles by birth and called uncircumcised by those who called themselves the circumcision, which is done in the body by human hands. Remember that at that time you were separate from Christ, excluded from citizenship in Israel and foreigners to the covenants of the promise, without hope and without God in the world. But now, in Christ Jesus, you who once were far away have been brought near by the blood of Christ. For he himself is our peace who has made the two groups one and has destroyed the barrier, the dividing wall of hostility, by setting aside in his flesh the law with its commands and regulations. His purpose was to create in himself one new humanity out of the two, thus making peace. And in one body to reconcile both of them to God through the cross by which he put to death their hostility what put to death the hostility between two groups of people that were polar opposites and did not get along it was the cross brought two divided groups of people together 
as one. He, Jesus, verse 17, came and preached peace to you who are far away and peace to those of us who were near. For through him, we both have access to the Father by one spirit. Consequently, you are no longer foreigners and strangers, but your fellow citizens with God's people and members of his household, built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets with Christ Jesus himself as the chief cornerstone. In him, the whole building's joined together and rises to become a holy temple in the Lord. In him too, you too are being built together to become a dwelling in which God lives by his spirit. Your Bible reading for the day is done. Well done. You just did a whole chapter. Pat yourself on the back. There you go. The power of the cross is not only that it reconciles man with God, but is that the power of the cross can bring together the most hostile of relationships. And God knows what it's like to have a family that's fractured. God knows what it's like to witness his community divided. And history that just says the same story again and again We'll, we've got to come to terms with the fact that there are always powers, spiritual, physical, political, or otherwise, that would seek to divide communities. Did you remember what happened this time last year? <laughs> there are always powers that wish to divide us, but there is always hope for fractured families. There is always hope for the fractured families, and that hope is found in the power of the cross. I want to share with you now the story of the scripture about how God himself understands what it's like to be part of a fractured family because there are many things that can divide us, but there is one thing that can bring us together. And the story starts, as always, in the book of Genesis. In Genesis chapter 3, we have the story of Cain and Abel. Cain, as you know, delivers an offering to God and God doesn't quite like it as much as his brother Abel's. God says, it's not quite what I'm after. And rather than saying, okay, God, I'll adjust next time, Cain envies his brother, hates his brother, and it says his face is downcast. Have I skipped a story? I have skipped a story. I meant to start with Adam and Eve. Everyone knows that. <laughs> Adam and Eve are first, your wallies. Eve's walking along in the garden today and she comes along a tree and there's a snake that speaks to her, which is a little bit weird. I see a snake, I run away, right? <laughs> a snake talks to me, <laughs> you know. But snakes talks to Eve and she, he famously says, did God really say, did God really say? Now, we often preach that as preachers and say one of the things that the devil wanted to do was to cast doubt into what God had said. But that's not entirely true. Because what Snake was doing is he was casting doubt in Eve's mind as to what Adam had said. Because Eve wasn't there on the day that God said, don't eat that fruit. Adam was. God had said that when Adam was in the garden and alongside him with his, was his mate called Snake. Because Adam and Snake were created on the same day. They shared a birthday. Snake was created with the creatures in the morning. Adam was created at happy hour in the afternoon. Eve wasn't even around. And God spoke those words and Snake heard it, but Eve didn't. Eve relied on the testimony of her husband. And how many of you know, ladies, sometimes your husbands don't give enough detail when they retell the story. So when Snake comes to Adam and said, nah, listen, I was there. I'm a good witness. I know what was said. Eve 
rather than going direct to the source. Rather than going to say, oh, okay, I might check with Adam and God because after all, I've got a relationship with God now. I can go direct to the source. No, because of inadequate communication. Eve, there's a division in a relationship that takes place, husband and wife relationship. And as you know, that ends up having a fracturing in that family. Sometimes relationships fracture just because we don't communicate properly. We now come to the story of their sons, Cain and Abel. Cain and Abel both give an offering. As you know, God looks favourably upon one but not the other. And rather than Cain saying, okay, God, I'll do better next time. Now that I know what you want, no worries, mate. Cain, it says, his eyes were downcast and he got angry at his brother. And he kills his brother because rather than just saying, okay, he had a victimhood complex that came upon him. He said, people are going to hate me wherever I go. I can never do anything right. Woe's me, woe's me. And he hated his brother and killed him. As you keep reading the story, you have Abraham come along, or Abram in chapter 12 of Genesis. And in chapter 13, as you know, they struggle to have a baby, Abram and uh, Sarah. But before that, I'm getting my stories all mixed up. Before that, we have Abram and Lot. Maybe I should look at my notes. <laughs> in Genesis 13, we have Abram and Lot. They're traveling together, and Lot is Abram's younger nephew. He's an orphan, Lot. His dad's dead. His un- uh, Abram's uncle. His dad's dead. Abram says, I'll look after you, mate. They go and they serve together and the herdsmen begin to fight. And Abram, who has a temperament, okay, that can't handle fighting and arguing and stress, just says, Lot, whatever you want, you just take it and let's just, let's just end the fighting. You see, years ago I went to see a psychologist. You know I needed that, didn't you? And he sat down with me and I didn't know what I was going to expect. I did not, I've never had counselling in my life. I was not looking forward to it. And he booked me in for two whole days, okay? <laughs> what the heck am I going to talk about for two days? Do, do I have three points for that, you know? Uh, what am I going to do? And he, but first of all, he did a temperament test on me. Answered answer all these questions. So he knew something about me before he sat down with me. And he read my mail for like two hours. He said, Chad, this is the kind of person you are. And he said, you're kind of like Abram. Abram's a guy who emotionally is very stable. Doesn't get particularly high, doesn't get particularly low. Abram is not like David, okay? Who's like, oh, boy, everyone loves me or everyone hates me. Oh, God, you're amazing. Oh, life sucks. Kill me, you know? And Abram's just like, he's kind of steady. He's a steady hand. He, he wants peace. And they can't really handle fighting very well. I often say in our marriage, you know, we don't fight. My wife does, but I don't. I don't have the energy for it. I don't care. And so when the herdsmen are fighting, rather than Abram saying, well, let's work this out because we're family and family sticks together. And I've got to look after my little nephew. The fighting Abrams and Abram just said, well, let's just split up. You take whatever you want and I'll take whatever I want. Let's just end it. Now, you might think, well, Chad, that shows Abram's great faith. Well, hang on. It's the same thing that Abram did when his wife comes to him one day, really upset. And she says, I can't have a baby. Would you go sleep with Hagar? And Abram says, fine. And it wasn't because Hagar was a hottie, okay? I mean, what's in her name? But come on. I mean, Hagar. <laughs> he did it to appease his wife. Happy wife, happy life. I'll do whatever it takes to make her happy. Let's just get on with it. He sleeps with Hagar. This is a temperament type. 
And sometimes, like every temperament, every tendency that we have has a positive and a negative potential. My temperament, that kind of level temperament is very good in crises. I can sit with people who are arguing and I'm like, steady hand. But the potential weakness of this temperament is that we would do anything for the sake of peace. And it seems to me this is what Abram does when it comes to Lot. The people are fighting and he just says, I can't help, just you go do whatever you want. And it didn't work out very well for Lot, did it? Lot needed his older uncle, Abram, to look after him. And so again, we see and witness something, a divided family. Abram, as you know, Sarah, they struggle to have a baby, sleeps with Hagar, Ishmael is born years later when Abram's 100 years of age, gives birth to Isaac, and at one years of age or two years of age, they have a party for him when he's a little baby because he's just been weaned. And at that party, Ishmael teases his little baby brother. Can you imagine a 15-year-old teenager harassing a one-year-old? It doesn't make sense. But it is amazing what people will do when they struggle with insecurity in their identity. Ishmael, am I the real son? Am I from the right mother? Did, did Abraham really want me? That struggle with identity meant that he would hurt a one-year-old kid. And of course, once that fighting started, Abram's like, ah, I can't handle it. Off you go. <laughs> In chapter 25, we have these two boys in Sarah's womb, Jacob and Esau, and these two are fighting in the womb. Like it just starts there, okay? They're fighting in the womb. As they get older, as you know, Jacob was the one who was meant to inherit the birthright, but he uh, is staying home, and Esau comes home, and Esau's famished. Sorry, Esau was the eldest. Esau was the one meant to inherit the birthright. And Esau was starving. And he comes home and he goes, mate, I'm hungry. Give me food now. And Jacob sees an opportunity and he windles the birthright out of his older brother because his birth, Esau, it says, he didn't care. He didn't care. He was only thinking of his stomach. He was apathetic when it came to what was most important and he signed it away. Sometime later, when it came to giving the blessing of the father, as you know, Jacob deceives his father again, dresses up like Esau as hairy and he steals the birthright of his older brother. This is now twice he's robbed his brother and this meant that Esau wanted to murder his own brother. Jacob had to run away. We witness again a fractured family. Why? Because of selfish ambition and because of apathy, of just not caring. There are many things that can lead to a fractured family. We come to the end of Genesis and of course we have the story of Joseph, Technicolor Dreamcoat and all the brothers, you know the deal. And because of envy and because of jealousy, when they see the suit that the father has made for Joseph, the brothers plot and scheme to kill him, sell him into slavery, you know the deal. It's amazing what people will do when they're jealous. It's amazing what people will do when they're envious. Now, let me just stop right there. You and I know that all of these stories have some wisdom in them for redemptive history. Okay, God knew all this was happening. And in fact, all of this stuff is prophetic types and shadows of what's going to happen in the future. The brothers persecuting Joseph, the younger brother persecuting the older brother. This is a theme that runs all the way through the Bible. That's why we see in the book, in, when we come to the New Testament, the Jewish brothers persecuting Jesus, Joseph. 
Okay, we see the old covenant community persecuting the church, the new covenant community, the older brother persecuting the younger brother. God knew this was going to happen. The book of Genesis, you see, is not just a book of origins. It's a book of prophecy. Genesis is a prophetic book because God knows the end right at the beginning. Isaiah says he tells the end at the beginning. So that's why when we read Genesis, it's all these types and shadows. It's a prophetic book showing us what's to come. But for the sake of today, we see God fracturing in God's family. By the time we hit Exodus, the first time we see two Hebrew men, they're fighting. Remember Moses comes out and sees two Hebrew men fighting. What are they fighting about? I don't know. But in our family, that's just what we do. Sometimes there's fracturing in families just because we know no different. All we do is fight and we're not happy unless we're sad. We're not happy unless we're angry. We're not happy unless there's tension. We just fight because that's the way it's always been. By the time you get to the book of Numbers, God's people are on a journey. And it says there in Numbers chapter 12 that Miriam begins to murmur against her baby brother, Moses. You see, Moses married a Cushite woman. Moses married an North African lady. Moses married a black chick. And Miriam got a bit of a bee in her bonnet about that. And it says there that Miriam murmurs about him behind the scenes and she says, is Moses the only one that thinks he hears God? Does he think he's better than us? And that's where that verse is inserted where it says, no, 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 Moses was the most humble man ever to have lived. You know that? It's inserted there. Why did Miriam think that Moses thought he was above us? Because in marrying a North African girl, Moses married up a class. The Hebrews were part of the slave class. They owned no property. They had no culture, no literature, no monetary system, no history, no legacy. They had nothing. They were slaves. Moses thinks he's better than us because he married a Cushite woman. He married upper class, couldn't find a girl from within the Hebrew people. His thinks he's better than us, raised in Pharaoh's home. After all, who does he think he is? You know one of the things that can divide communities? Racial bias, class bias. And even though God's people had come out of Egypt, Miriam still had this mentality, this tall poppy syndrome. You think you're better than us. Nah, I don't think I'm better than you. In fact, I'm, I'm pretty humble. I just know who I am. I'm confident to know who that I am. Chapter 13, as you know, the 12 spies get sent into Canaan, into the promised land. Two come back with a, bad, uh, a good report, ten come back with a bad report. And the bad report was simply this. We don't have what it takes to defeat the giants. Those giants are too big for us. The ten spies did not say those giants are too big for God. They said they're too big for us. Because after all, we are just grasshoppers. You see, after years of slavery, being told in Egypt by slave drivers, you're nothing. You're useless. You're pathetic. You're nothing but a measly grasshopper. I'm going to crush you under my feet. God's people came out of that oppression. They were free from that. They were no longer under that. But that cultural conditioning was still with them. That's why Joyce Meyer has taught us for years. You can come out of Egypt in a moment, but it can take years to get Egypt out of you. And so they did not inherit their promised land. The community again was divided. Why? Because of strong cultural conditioning. You're not to see yourselves as slaves anymore. You have God within you. 
And those giants will bow to you because of the God that is within you and among you. But they were so culturally conditioned, it caused again a rift in the community and a delay in destiny for 40 years. Fast forward now, Joshua takes the people. Do you understand what I'm saying? This is a Bible story today, okay? You're getting a Bible story. Oh, yeah, I should have had one of those felt boards up here and done the thing. that I have done that before, actually. It's really fun. Joshua leads the people into the promised land. He hands over to the uh, elders of the tribes. And after a while, they call out for judges and God gives them leaders when they need them. 400 years of judges. The last great judge is a guy called Samuel. He's both a military leader and a prophet. That's what judges are. And yet Samuel does this weird thing in 1 Samuel chapter 18. One day he thinks, I'm going to appoint my sons to take over when I die. Now, no judge in history had ever done that before. No judge. They'd never appointed their sons to succeed them. But Samuel does, for some weird reason. And it doesn't go well. The people don't like them. But it gives God's people an idea. They say, listen, we don't like your sons, but we do like this idea of a system where there's always a succession in place. How about we change the system of government that we're in and we go to a monarchy? Because in a monarchy, you don't have to trust God to give you what you need when you need it. In a monarchy, you know that there's always going to be a king on the throne because it's always the son. In the system of a monarchy, you trust the system, not trust the spirit. See, this, this occurred to me one day because I'm reading through Samuel and God gets really ticked off about them asking for a king. <laughs> asking for a king to lead us in battles. And I'm like, well, hang on. What's the big deal, God? People have been asking for a leader for years. Asking for a judge to lead us and you gave them one. Ask for a judge to lead us, God gave you one. Now you ask for a king to lead us and it really ticks God off. What's the difference? The difference is the system of governance. You see, sometimes division happens just because of unholy systems and unholy structures. Some of you have been part of churches that have been really divided and fractured. And it's not necessarily because of an issue with the heart of the people or vision. It's just there's really unhelpful structures in place that just breed division. And God's people ask for a monarchy. God doesn't like it, but he gives it to them anyway. King Saul was the first leader. He leads well for about, I don't know, three weeks, okay? <laughs> and then... Little David is anointed the shepherd to be the next king and he rises through the ranks of the army and the women come out and as he comes home from battle and they sing their song, Saul has struck his thousands, but David has struck his tens of thousands and Saul gets jealous and Saul gets envious and Saul is afraid of what's going to happen if David wants to take over my throne and Saul begins to find out ways over and over again to kill young David. Why? It's amazing what people will do when they're afraid. It's amazing what people will do when they're afraid. It's amazing what people will do when they're proud. David finds solace in a friend called Jonathan. Jonathan is, Samuel, is Saul's son and Jonathan says, listen mate, I'm with you. I'm with you through this. If anything happens with my dad, I'm going to let you know. And over and over again, Saul makes attacks on David's life, throws spears, sends men to arrest him. He's let out by his wife by, you know, through a basket or whatever, however the story goes. Over and over again, Saul's going to go, I'm going to kill him, I'm going to kill him, I'm going to kill him. And David runs away and he gets on the phone to Jonathan and he says, what's going on, bro? And Jonathan goes, nah, my dad wouldn't do that. 
but I'll, I'll watch him closely for you. As you keep reading there in Samuel, Saul gets so ticked off at Jonathan, his own son, he tries to kill Jonathan. He throws a spear at his own son, not just David now. He tries to kill his own son, Jonathan. Jonathan experiences a near death. He's dead. He sees the fury and anger in his father, Saul. And yet he goes back to David and he says, oh, yeah, I think dad's got a bit of an anger problem. Um, <laughs> but it'll be okay. And he goes back to King Saul. Through some sense of unsanctified naivety, Jonathan stayed with a man, stayed with a leader that had proved himself over and over and again to be untrustworthy. Violent, angry, temperamental, untrustworthy. And yet Jonathan, it seemed, was naive. Rather than going with David, rather than being a part of the kingdom that David would build, knowing that David was God's anointed for the future, he stuck around with his dad Saul and he died on a battlefield playing for a losing team. There's a difference between being childish and being childlike. There's a difference between being innocent of heart and naive. Sometimes we just need to wise up. Jonathan, an example to me, of unsanctified naivety and it split Jonathan and David apart. Even after Saul dies, there's people that love King Saul. King Saul's the man. We don't like David, we like Saul. And it says there in Samuel that for years the house of Saul hated the house of David and there was a division in the community. You know why? Because some people just can't let go of the old. An overextended loyalty to what worked in the past divides communities because they can't see that God's doing a new thing for the future. And again, for years, what could have been a seamless succession, transition, seamless succession took years of warring in Israel because people could just not let go of the past. As you keep reading, David's now in charge, he's king of Israel, and things are going pretty well. But one day, his son Amnon does the most disgraceful thing. He gets his stepsister into his room and he sexually assaults her. Her brother is called Absalom. And he hears about this and like all of us would be, he is absolutely enraged. My half-brother raped my sister. How dare you? David finds out about this. And David, it says, is furious. But he does nothing. His own son has raped his daughter. But he says nothing. Well, Tamar now lives with her older brother, Absalom. Absalom takes her in. Come on, stay with me, sis. I'll look after you. And after two years, Absalom building up resentment because this is not being spoken about at Christmas. Every Christmas... <laughs> every family reunion this is just breeding something in Absalom resenting his dad for not saying anything and resenting his brother well after two years he's had enough and he orchestrates the murder of his brother he basically kills his brother David finds out about it and he grieves he grieves the loss of his rapist son and Absalom flees for three years he lives in, in a foreign land to be safe Okay, because he's committed murder. He lives for three years in a foreign land and David makes no contact with him. 
After a while, people convince him, mate, you've got to come back. You've got to come back to home, bro. So he comes back home, home, bro. And he's there for two years living in the same city. And David doesn't talk to him once. Five years. He let his son Absalom. He never opened the conversation. Never engaged with his son. And it was this man, Absalom, that ended up forming a coup against his dad. Okay, Absalom gets a bad rap. And maybe rightfully so. He goes to the city gates. He woos people. He lies. He tells a bit half-truths about his dad. Oh, my dad's not really that good a king. Tell me your problems, okay? Dad's not really interested in you. The church is too big now. Come to, sorry, the kingdom's too big now. Come and speak to me. I'll hear your problems. So he does that. He wins people to himself. And again, the kingdom is divided. Why? Well, maybe it's because of Absalom. But maybe what would have stopped Absalom being created was if David had just dealt with his shame. You see, some personalities, this creative type of personality, up and down, up and down, also have a greater propensity to experience shame and embarrassment for the things that they've done. And I don't know this for sure, because the Bible doesn't actually say this. This is just Chad thinking about it. But maybe David didn't have the confidence to approach his sons because he himself had done those two very things himself. Rape and murder. See, if you read through the story of David and Bathsheba, it never says that she consented to that relationship. Her husband was out at war one day. She's at home at night, okay, and soldiers knock on her door with swords. And they say, the king wants you in his chambers right now. Come. You think she had a choice about that? Interesting. So David has committed that he's watching his sons commit the very same sin and he's like, who am I to confront? Who am I to bring this up? And that sense of undealt with shame and the father wounds that developed in Absalom. Tell you what, you don't need to have to be a pastor for 20 years to know the power that father wounds have on people. And yet again, we see a kingdom that is split and a family that is fractured. Well, after David, of course, he hands over to Solomon And Solomon rules wisely for a while, but at the end of his life, at the end of his reign, he starts to feel a bit privileged. And the power of reigning a great kingdom goes a bit to his head. And even though hundreds of years earlier, Moses said, don't let your kings marry many women and don't let your kings take many horses for their army, guess what Solomon does? Wise old Solomon. A sense of privilege, a sense of power meant that Solomon was above the rules. I'm above the rules. They don't apply to me. I'm one of the specials. And in disobeying those commands from God, a prophet comes one day and he says, listen, Solomon, after you die, this kingdom is going to be split. The whole kingdom, David's big kingdom, Israel, is going to be divided. He takes a garment, he rips it into 12 pieces, and he says, you have two, the other guy will have 10 after your death. Solomon dies and his son, Rehoboam, takes over from him. Of course, that's how the monarchy works. And Rehoboam's young and is enthusiastic and he now has the power, you see. And so what he does is he goes to the old boys, the guys who had run the kingdom with his son, with his dad, and he says, listen, why don't you give me some advice? How do you think I should govern you grey heads that have been around in the church, in the kingdom for 50 years? What do you think I should do? Give me some advice. And they say, be kind to people. 
Treat them well, and they'll treat you well. Serve the people, and their hearts will be loyal to you. Be kind to people. And young <laughs> Rehoboam listens to that and goes, yeah, okay, I'll think about it. He then goes to his young college mates. Just got out of uni. Okay, all a little bit there, all hugged up on the power. Our mate is in charge, okay? Our mate's in charge of this great kingdom. Just came out of uni. They're so stupid, they still think socialism's a good idea, okay? <laughs> and he goes to them and he says, what do you think I should do? Give me some advice. And they say, you should increase taxes. That'd be a good idea. Treat people harshly. You think Solomon taxed you? We're going to tax you even more. And Rehoboam listens to these young idiots. He takes their advice and the kingdom is split. God's kingdom. A family under Abraham that became a nation under Moses, that became a kingdom under Saul and David, is now a divided kingdom with 10 tribes in the north called Israel, two tribes in the south called Judah. The kingdom is split. And for the rest of the Old Testament story, it's us and them, us and them, us and them. The kingdom split and they say, we don't want to have anything to do with David's family. Why did those 10 tribes disappear? Why did those 10 tribes say, we're going to have our own king, our own system, our own history. We want to have nothing to do with David and nothing to do with Moses. They made their own altars, worshipped their own gods. They did their own thing. Why? Because some people, when they overreact, they create an us versus them mentality. If you don't agree with me, I'm going to throw out everything that you agree with. If you're not for me, you are against me. Now, we never see that in church life, thank God. But this mentality of if you're not with us, you're against us. And this split happened. Now, Jesus, of course, says the very opposite. He says, listen, if people aren't for you, if people aren't against you, assume the best. Assume they're actually with you. Assume the best. No, when you're overreacting, when you're throwing the baby out with the bathwater, it's us and them, us and them, and the kingdom is split. The guys up north make Samaria the capital city. Ahaz makes Samaria the capital city. And over two centuries, they have 19 kings as these two kingdoms war against one another, fighting, 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 fighting. Eventually, 722 BC, this northern kingdom is taken away. <laughs> Hosea says, God killed you with the words of his prophets. Because you're an adulterous wife, the book of Hosea, Amos, Micah, Hosea, Isaiah, they prophesy to this northern kingdom and they say, because you've disobeyed God, God will send you into exile and that is a spiritual death. Track with me. It is as if you have died, Hosea says. God has come against you with the words of a lion and he's ripped you apart. Uh, Hosea is one of my favourite books. Okay, And he says, and God sends them away. Just like Adam was sent eastward out of Eden, so the northern kingdom was sent eastward and they were now dead to God. They were dead in sin. You would think that the guys down south would watch their crazy cousins up north and learn from their mistakes, but they don't. Another hundred or so years later, a kingdom called Babylon is now in charge. Not Assyria, but Babylon, led by a king called Nebuchadnezzar. <laughs> You've just got to look at it really closely. <laughs> I'm in the Bible, okay? <laughs> Nebuchadnezzar. And Nebuchadnezzar comes against the south. 
And in three raiding parties, he takes people away. In the first, Daniel is taken away. In the second, Ezekiel is taken away. And in the third attack on Jerusalem, Jeremiah is there going, oh, what the heck's going on? And he says, this is because we're disobeying God and we haven't learnt the lessons from the north. Now, fortunately, God said, there will always be a remnant of people. So David will always have a legacy so the eternal king can one day come. But it is in this period of history, north, south, Israel, Judah, the north is now dead. They are scattered among the nations. They are basically Gentiles. And the south, the men of Judah, it's in this part of the Bible that the word Jew comes up for the first time. Okay? Because Jew means a man of Judah. Abraham wasn't a Jew. He was a Hebrew. No such things as Jews until Judah, the men of Judah. And Jeremiah, in the age of Jeremiah, the city is destroyed and the people are taken away. But there is always hope. There is always hope. There is hope for new life to come to this dead community. And there is hope for the north and south to be brought back together again. And one of the prophets that prophesies it so clearly is a prophet, Ezekiel. We're going to close with this. You're going to see this come full circle. Ezekiel 37. Did you enjoy your Bible story today? Ezekiel 37. The hand of the Lord was on me, and he brought me out by the Spirit of the Lord and set me in the middle of a valley. It was full of bones. He led me back and forth among them, and I saw a great many bones on the floor of the valley, bones that were very dry. He asked me, son of man, can these bones live? I said, oh, you know God. How about you have a shot? That's the safest thing to say when God asks you a question. Then he said to me, prophesy to these bones and say to them, dry bones, hear the word of the Lord. This is what the sovereign Lord says to these bones. I will make breath enter you and you will come to life. I will attach tendons to you and make flesh come upon you and cover you with skin. I will put breath in you and you will come to life. Then you will know that I am the Lord. So I prophesied as I was commanded, and as I was prophesying, there was a noise, a rattling sound. Bones came together, bone to bone. I looked, and the tendons and flesh appeared on them, and skin covered them. But there wasn't any breath in them yet. Then he said to me, prophesy to the breath, prophesy, son of man, and say to it, this is what the sovereign Lord says. Come, breathe from the four winds, and breathe into these slain that they may live. So I prophesied as he commanded me, and breath entered them. They came to life and stood up on their feet, a vast army, singular, one army. Then he said to me, son of man, these bones are the people of Israel. They say, our bones are dried up and our hope is gone. We are cut off. How can dead people talk? Because they're not physically dead. They're spiritually dead. They're cut off from the life of God. Therefore, prophesy and say to them, this is what the sovereign Lord says, my people, I'm going to open your graves and bring you up from them. I'll bring you back to the land of Israel. Then you, my people, will know that I'm the Lord when I open your graves and bring you up from them. I'll put my spirit in you. Gee, I wonder what that sounds like. Pentecost, anyone? And you will live. I'll settle you in your towns and your land, and then you will know that I am the Lord, and I have done it, declares the Lord. He speaks to dead people and says, you will live. Another word for that, resurrection. You were dead in sin. This people who've been cast out of relationship with God but I'm going to breathe on you, prophesy. One army is going to come. Let's keep reading. The word of the Lord came to me, son of man, take a stick of wood 
and write on it belonging to Judah and the Israelites associated with him. That's the kingdom in the south. A stick to represent the kingdom of the south. Then take another stick of wood and write on it belonging to Joseph, Ephraim and all the Israelites associated with him. That represents the people in the north. Join them together into one stick so that they will become one in your hand. When your people ask you, why don't you tell us what you mean by this? Say to them, this is what the sovereign Lord says. I'm going to take the stick of Joseph, which is in Ephraim's hand, and the Israelite tribes associated with him, and join them to Judah's stick. I'll make them into a single stick of wood, and they'll become one in my hand. Hold before their eyes the sticks you've written on and say to them, this is what the Sovereign Lord says. I will take the Israelites out of all the nations where they've gone. I'll gather them from around and bring them back into their own land. I'll make them one nation in their land on the mountains of Israel. There will be one king over all of them and they'll never again be two. They'll never again be divided into two kingdoms. I wonder who that king could be. They will no longer defile themselves with their idols and images or any of their fences, for I will save them from their sinful backsliding and I will cleanse them. They will be my people and I will be their God. That sounds like covenant to me. My servant David will be king over them. Hint, hint. And they will have one shepherd. Hint, hint. They will follow my laws and be careful to keep my decrees. They will live in the land I gave to my servant Jacob, the land where they and the children's children will live there forever. And David, my servant, will be their prince forever. An eternal king, an eternal shepherd. Is David going to come back from the dead? Or is this speaking of someone else? I will make a covenant of peace with them, an everlasting covenant, establish them and increase their numbers and put my sanctuary among them forever. My presence will never leave them. My dwelling place will be with them. I'll be the God. They'll be my people. Then the nations will know that I, the Lord, make Israel holy when I and my sanctuary are among them. 600 years BC, Ezekiel is in Babylon prophesying to the men of Judah who've been taken out of their land. He takes two pieces of wood, one representing the northern kingdom that Hosea in the era that Hosea was scattered, one representing the southern kingdom of Judah. And he's prophesying to the exiles away. And he says, listen, God's going to take these two kingdoms and join them together so that they are one, no longer two, but one in God's hand. And as I was preparing this message, first time I spoke it at our church. In fact, after I spoke this message in our church the first time, within three months we had two marriages healed. Just thought I'd say that. A couple walked into church holding hands. I'm like, who's this dude? Because this lady had been in our church for a year. She goes, oh, this is my husband. I'm like, you're divorced. She goes, no, not anymore. And it occurred to me, I wonder if Ezekiel held the sticks like this. Or I wonder. Is it possible? Is it possible that 600 years BC, before the Romans ever invented crucifixion, that Ezekiel walked among the men of Judah and said, there is a time coming where a king will come and rule us together. A king will breathe resurrection life into my people and we will no longer be two. We will be one in the hands of God. This king will be David. This king will be a shepherd 
and we will be united together. Is it possible that Ezekiel prophesied the death and the resurrection of Jesus that would bring a fractured family together forever? Jew and Gentile, north and south, Ishmael and Esau, Cain and Abel, David and Absalom, Abram and Lot, no matter how broken a relationship with is, I want to say to you today, there is healing hope for fractured families. And that hope is found in the power of the cross that can bring warring groups of people together. The power of the cross and a fresh breath of the Spirit of God that can bring new life and reconcile not only heaven and earth, but reconcile the most divided of communities. I believe in the power of the cross and I believe in the power of the Spirit. Some of you today, I said, this is going to be a word that hopefully really resonates with you because your family, your workplace, somewhere there's recently been a fracturing and it's weighing on your heart. Allow the Holy Spirit to breathe hope into your heart this morning. Hope into your heart for a healing and a coming together of fractured relationships. In fact, I think all of us in this room know of some situation where a relationship's been broken and we know there needs to be some kind of reconciliation there. I'm wondering whether this morning we can pray into those situations, declare the power of the cross, declare a fresh breeze and wind of the Holy Spirit to breathe new life into those relationships. Why don't you close your eyes and ask Holy Spirit just to Say, Lord, this morning, is there a relationship, a situation that needs your reconciliation power? I submit it to you today. Say, Holy Spirit, blow. Holy Spirit, come. I declare and decree the power of the cross in that situation. I declare new life and a new beginning.